Well, Merry Christmas to you, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Welcome to Community Bible Church. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Ernest Hemingway said that World War I was the most colossal, murderous, mismanaged butchery that's ever taken place on earth. President Woodrow Wilson said about World War I, this was a war to end all wars. World War I began in the summer of 1914 and lasted four years, during which time nine million soldiers and five million civilians were killed, with another 23 million people wounded. And yet, in the midst of such hostility, aggression, and carnage came one of the most memorable moments of the glory of God in war that has ever been seen on the face of the earth. On Christmas Eve, 1914, in the bloody, cold, soaking wet trenches of British-held southern Belgium, British soldier, Private Frederick Heath, captured the glory of God in a letter that he sent home, which said the following, quote, All down our line of trenches there came to our ears a greeting unique in war. English soldier, English soldier, a Merry Christmas, a Merry Christmas. Come out, English soldier, come out here to us. For some little time, we were cautious and did not even answer. Officers, fearing treachery, ordered the men to be silent. But up and down our line, one heard the men answering that Christmas greeting from the enemy. How could we resist wishing each other a Merry Christmas, even though we might be at each other's throats immediately afterward? And so we kept up a running conversation with the Germans, all the while our hands ready on our rifles. Blood and peace, enmity and fraternity, war's most amazing paradox. The night wore on to dawn, says Private, Private Frederick Heath. A night made easier by songs from the German trenches, the piping of piccolos, and from our broad lines laughter and Christmas carols. Not a shot was fired. The Germans were singing Silent Night. The British responded singing the first Noel. The pleasantries continued into Christmas Day when the men gathered at the barbed wire line that separated them. There they shook hands, shared food, and played games together. There are reported at least four soccer games happened starting, uh, started up between British and German soldiers who laid their guns down on Jesus' birthday to wish their fellow soldiers on the opposing line a Merry Christmas. The cause of their country was no match for the coming of Jesus Christ, who chose to dwell among hostile humanity, and so the soldiers also chose to dwell among one another in a mutual, even temporary peace. Against the wishes of their commanding officers, these frontline World War II British and German soldiers ended the bloodshed momentarily so that they could behold the glory of Jesus' birth together. This glorious event from World War I is called the Christmas Truce of 1914. It was entirely unique and described by some as magical and inspiring, even in as much as it was temporary. It begs the question of us this morning. What glory is this that moved the hearts of soldiers from killing to kindness? What glory is this that caused soldiers to briefly end hostility and to engage hospitality? What glory is this that triggered Warring armies to stop shooting for two days to sing Christmas carols about the birth of baby Jesus born in Bethlehem 1,900 years prior. What glory is this, brothers and sisters? This is the continuation of the glory of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christmas truce of 1914 further amplifies the glory of God at the birth of Emmanuel, Jesus, in Bethlehem. You're in John chapter 1 where we have been studying Jesus' incarnation, his condescension to earth, his humble coming to earth in flesh, which is explicitly described in the prologue of John's gospel at John 1.14. John's prologue takes us to Jesus' glory with God the Father in eternity past, and then Jesus' glory at the creation of the world 6,500 years ago, and now to Jesus' glory in taking on flesh and dwelling among us 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. The point of John's prologue is to establish Jesus is God as fact in your mind. God, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus shares the same essential nature with the Father and the Spirit 
And as we will see today, Jesus shares all the glory in heaven and on earth with the Father and the Spirit, though all three are distinct persons. John is not sharing this glorious and divine information to stop wars from being fought and to prevent millions from dying of physical death. We know what is appointed for, from God for all men once to die, and then each man will face the judgment, according to Hebrews 9.27. John is writing so that you may believe while you live that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. He is not writing to save the physical lives of anyone, but to give spiritual life through belief in Jesus. The British and German soldiers in World War I prevented physical death momentarily while they rejoiced in the birth of Messiah and beheld the glory of Jesus taking on flesh. Perhaps the Lord used their temporary truce to save some men spiritually, as it was, as you can imagine, a powerful moment provided by the glory of Jesus' incarnation. Now, today, all these years later, on Christmas Day, it is our great joy to say, Happy Birthday, Jesus. As we pause and consider, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's read then John's prologue together again and spend our time this morning beholding the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. John writes in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man, having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which... Coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of the will of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said. He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus has explained him. Friends, I sure hope you understand God has always communicated with creation, his creation. He's never not communicated with his creation. Never has mankind been without the knowledge of God. King David declares in Psalm 19.1, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Paul tells the Romans in Romans 1.19, that which is known about God is evident within every man. For God made it evident to every man. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that all men everywhere are without excuse. How much more are men without excuse because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? John says that Jesus fully explains God. That's what he says in the text. Jesus was explaining God in the Old Testament through theophanies when the pre-incarnate Christ visited men and women specifically. However, these divine, in-person, Old Testament encounters with Jesus for the, were, were for the purpose of comfort, rebuke, instruction, prophecy, and blessing, but they were inherently temporary, just like the Christmas truce of 1914. They didn't last, nor did they eliminate the abiding hostility that existed between God and man. And yet our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they have always had a plan for reconciliation between God and man. What was the eternal plan of God to rescue and redeem wretched sinners from before the foundation of the world and give us salvation? The plan was this, brothers and sisters. Send a Messiah. Have Jesus enter into his creation. Merry Christmas. Happy birthday, Jesus. 
This is the plan. God became a man. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. This is the answer. This is the solution. There is no other. If he becomes a man, he can take on our sin and die a death on the cross that we never could to pay God for our wretchedness and our sin. And in that transaction, he can then give us his own righteousness. What a savior. What a God. What a purpose. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, God, having spoken long ago in the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Emmanuel, God with us, in the flesh, the seed of the woman, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, lowly, despised, and rejected, the suffering servant of Yahweh, God made him known through the prophets in the Old Testament. The first promise of the incarnation of Jesus was captured by Moses when he wrote the words of Yahweh, our God, rebuking Satan in Genesis 3.15 when Yahweh said this to Satan, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, her seed, the one, he shall bruise you, Satan, on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Isaiah records in Isaiah 7.14, Yahweh said to King Ahaz 700 years before Jesus' birth, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, Isaiah in Isaiah 9.6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The Lord, through the prophet Micah, in Micah 5.2, says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. All of these passages and many others reveal the plan of God's greatest glory demanded the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the flesh of men. Jesus was born of a woman, born in Bethlehem, born to a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and King David. Brothers and sisters, all of these Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in the person that we celebrate today, Jesus Christ. What does this say, then? This plan, this outworking, this day, what does it say about the sovereignty, power, control, and glory of the God that we serve? All that is left for us to say, then, on Christmas Day, with all of these truths in our mind, is happy birthday, Jesus. Happy birthday, Jesus. And to spend our time consumed beholding his glory, just as John does in his prologue. John 1.14, friends, is the birthday party for Jesus. John 1.14 is an incarnation celebration. It is here at this moment of John 1.14, and even from 1.14 through 1.18, that John offers six incarnation celebration realities that make us marvel at Jesus' humility and his glory. It's here in the text, John 1, verses 14 through 18, that John presents six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday which reveal the grace and glory of God. What six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday make us marvel at his humility, grace, and glory? We've been looking at these for three weeks now. The first one we saw is right there in verse 14, Jesus' humble incarnation. Number one, the first of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday is Jesus' humble incarnation. And the word became flesh. Second, we see Jesus' relational habitation. The second of six heavenly blessings. Jesus' relational habitation. John goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. A personal home, an intimate abode with us, which we saw last week. Jesus' dwelling among men was critical for our identity and for him to influence us and our culture and our world with what salvation is on terms of righteousness. We come then third. The third of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday where we will spend our time today. The point in your notes that you want to write down. The third of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday. Number three. Still in verse 14. Number three. Jesus' glorious revelation. Jesus' glorious revelation. 
The third of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday. Number three, Jesus' glorious revelation. Jesus' humble incarnation. Jesus' relational habitation. Jesus' glorious revelation. Number three in your notes. The glory of Jesus Christ was, friends, revealed to men. This was not a secret that God was going to keep hidden. This is something that he absolutely must reveal. Jesus' humble incarnation and relational habitation with us, they served their perfect purpose. The purpose of Jesus' personal relational ministry on earth was to reveal and explain the very essence and nature of God to men, especially the love and grace of God that exists in his person by dying on the cross to pay for the sins of all those who would ever believe in his name. And although Jesus' ministry was very blatantly public, his message was largely rejected. And yet, in the grace of God and for the glory of God, men and women were chosen by God from eternity past to feel, see, perceive, and receive the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, to capture those ideas and thoughts and to have his apostles record them for us in the word of God that we read today. We read in the text of John 1.14, John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. We, collectively, we beheld his glory. Couldn't miss it. It was glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the thought for this morning. This is a thought for this morning. This really has been a delightful thought for me over the course of the last many weeks, but particularly this last week. Beholding the glory of God. We beheld his glory. I think about Community Bible Church, the slogan. You know, that's, for me, this is it. We beheld his glory. Beholding his glory. On Christmas Day, 1971, there was some football glory being beheld. I'll share it with you. Christmas Day, 1971, two NFL records were set on Christmas Day, 1971, when the Miami Dolphins beat the Kansas City Chiefs for the final score of 27-24. That all sounds normal. What were the records? Well, the first record was this was the NFL's longest game in history, 82 minutes and 40 seconds. Dolphin fans remember well their team winning this first-round playoff game in 1971 over the Kansas City Chiefs as they beheld the glory of Gary Yepremian and his 37-yard game-winning field goal, which happened in double overtime. How easy would it be for Kansas City fans to forget Christmas Day 1971 and their team's loss in this playoff game? It'd be pretty easy after such a heartbreaking loss in double overtime. But diehard Chiefs fans will never forget Christmas Day 1971 because they beheld the glory of their running back, Ed Podolik, who racked up 350 all-purpose yards in their double overtime loss. Ed Podolik still holds the NFL playoff game record performance with his 350 all-purpose yards on Christmas Day, 1971. How many Chiefs fans remember Ed Podolik and the glory that he displayed in this playoff game? Beholding Jesus' glory, friends, is infinitely better than football glory, hockey glory, or even Argentina, Messi, World Cup, championship, overtime win, glory last Sunday, which caused many of you to show up late for church. <laughs> John says, we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. We here refers to John, to his fellow apostles, and to all first century believers who participated in Jesus' life and ministry. These men and women didn't miss the glory of the incarnate word of God. Our Father in heaven made sure that several men and women, hundreds, even thousands, were saved and could honestly account for all of the glory manifested by the Son of God during his life on earth. Jesus uses, or sorry, John is, that is to say, John uses the Greek word theomai, which is translated beheld, which means to look at, to see, to visit. The verb carries with it the intensity of contemplation alongside calm admiration. This verb, theomai, for behold. The verb is in the middle voice, which means that John and everyone else expressed self-interest as they were gazing at Jesus Christ. It was, a, it was good for the soul of John the Apostle to gaze at and stare at Jesus Christ, to behold his glory. William Barclay says, Theomai means to gaze at someone until something has been grasped of the significance of that person. I like the way William Hendrickson talks about Theomai. He says this, he says, Theomai indicates careful and deliberate vision which seeks to interpret objects. 
It refers to physical sight, yet it always includes a plus, the plus of calm scrutiny, contemplation, or even wonderment. It describes the act of one who does not stare absent-mindedly, nor merely look quickly, nor necessarily perceive comprehensively. On the contrary, he says, this individual who is doing the theomai, the beholding, this individual regards an object and reflects upon it. He scans it, examining it with care. He studies it, viewing it, and considering it thoughtfully. The way that a mother gazes into the eyes of her infant child. The way that we husbands should think on our wives. Turning your Bibles to Exodus 33, verse 12. Exodus 33, verse 12. Friends, the disciples were given eyes that penetrated the mystery and saw the radiance and brilliance and glory of the Son of God. They beheld physically, literally, by sight, they beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. What a blessing this would have been, for sure, for any one of us. For them, it was most definitely an incredible blessing in their life to walk with Jesus, to see his ministry and his message. And yet, we shouldn't forget what Jesus taught Thomas at the end of John's Gospel in John 20, 29, when he said, Because you, Thomas, have seen me, have you now believed? Jesus said to him, Blessed are those who did not see me and yet believed. Jesus' glory can be seen but only by those on whom he has placed his grace and favor. You must be given the right to believe, friend. This is not something that you're earned, by the way. You don't earn the right to believe. Jesus must give you the right to believe. He must give you faith. He must give you belief. He must usher that into you. You must be given faith. You must be, as the scripture says in John chapter 3, born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus must allow you to be called a child of God. If Jesus has delivered his salvation to you, then you will behold his glory. First by faith, and certainly by sight later. Finally by sight, I should say. John Owen says, One of the greatest privileges and advancement of believers, both in this world and to eternity, consists in their beholding of the glory of Jesus Christ. John Owen says, There are two ways of beholding the glory of Christ, which are constantly distinguished in the scripture the one is by faith and the other is by sight you're in exodus 33 where moses has been experiencing the dwelling glory that is the shekinah glory of god at mount sinai he's seen smoke he's seen fire clouds as well while he is communicating directly with god but moses wants more he wants more from God, more affirmation, more assurance, more certainty of Yahweh's presence and commitment to him and to all of Israel, these ragtag group of people that he led out of Egypt. So we read in Exodus 33:12. Then Moses said to Yahweh, 33:12. Then Moses said to Yahweh, "See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So now, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. See also that this nation is your people. And God said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Indeed, how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not by your going with us so that we and I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? And then Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And God said to him, I myself will make my, all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you shall see my back, 
but my face shall not be seen. Would you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9? Luke 9, we'll look at verse 28. This account of Moses seeing the glory of God, requesting to see the glory of God. What do we learn about Moses beholding the glory of Yahweh? Well, from that account there in Exodus 33, you're turning to Luke 9, by the way. What we learn from the account of Moses beholding the glory of Yahweh in Exodus 33 is this. First we learn, seeing Yahweh is great confirmation of his love and grace. Second, we learn Yahweh is only ever seen on his terms and on his conditions. Third, we see that Yahweh delights in revealing himself to his elect, chosen, adopted, redeemed, saved children. Fourth, we see that Yahweh is not obligated to reveal himself to anyone. Not all of Israel saw him, only Moses. Fifth, seeing Yahweh is highly desirable for assurance, affirmation, and eternal security. Sixth, we see that Yahweh expects the faith that he has given his chosen people will be assurance enough for them without physically seeing him. Seventh, we see that Yahweh is full of mercy, love, and compassion for his people and will turn our faith into sight. The Apostle John saw more of Jesus than any other disciple. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end, John truly beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. Never did he... Behold the glory of Jesus Christ more than when Jesus transfigured himself gloriously on a mountain in the northernmost part of Israel. You're in Luke 9, verse 28, where Luke records this moment of Jesus glorifying himself and manifesting powerfully his glory visibly to Peter, James, and John when Luke says in Luke 9, 28, Now it happened some eight days after these words, That taking along Peter and John and James, Jesus went up on a high mountain to pray. And it happened that while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men standing with him. And it happened that as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow all of these men. And they were afraid as the cloud overwhelmed them and they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud, said this, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle John beheld the glory of Jesus physically in a way that you and I never will behold the glory of Jesus until our faith is made sight when we die. Which begs that I ask you some important questions this morning. What is most critical to you today? Faith in Jesus or physical sight of Jesus? Is physical sight of Jesus required to see the glory of Jesus? Have you demanded that God give you a physical vision before you will believe? Does your faith first demand sight? Is that biblical faith? Are you going to tell me faith cannot produce spiritual sight of the glory of Jesus Christ? Turning your Bibles to John 21. John 21. Friends, doesn't biblical faith allow us to see the glory of Jesus Christ today? On Christmas Day, doesn't faith allow us to see the glory of Christ today? No one here is seeing Jesus physically in a manger. Do you see the glory of Jesus in the manger? That's faith. Can you see the glory of Jesus right now, friends? Today in his church. In 2022, in Mead, Washington. Where can you look right now and behold the glory of the God-man, Jesus Christ, today? In your life, by faith. Can you see his glory in your own life, by faith, today? Has Yahweh sufficiently supplied evidence of Jesus' glory, not only in his 33-year ministry, but in his character, his prophecies, and abiding presence in his body, the church, 
and in your life where he dwells through the person of the Spirit in your heart? Brothers and sisters, the overwhelming answer is yes, we can behold the glory of Christ today. We have the Word of God, which is our evidence manual of the glory of Christ. We have the testimony of the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts. And we have a conscience loaded with the commands of God in our heart and in the hearts of all mankind. We have the Church of Jesus Christ, which has existed even thriving through great persecutions over the course of the last 2,000 years. And we have the glory of Jesus Christ all around us, especially here at Community Bible Church, even as we open the Word of God and preach the text of John chapter 1. We have Christ's glory all around us. At the Incarnation, on Christmas Day, on New Year's Day, every day, we have the glory of Jesus Christ abounding around us. Can you, by faith, see the glory of Christ? The Apostle John is concerned about the glory of Christ, and he's concerned about our faith. That's the whole point of his gospel, to cause belief in Jesus Christ for Jesus' glory, and increase, inform, and strengthen the faith of believers in Jesus Christ by retelling seven signs from Jesus' ministry, which highlight the glory of Jesus, which John had personally seen. John communicates the glory of Jesus two ways in his gospel. John shares Jesus' glory First, in the vast quantity of his miracles, and second, in the venerable quality of his character. I want to talk with you about these two ways that John beholds the glory of Jesus Christ. It's here in our text today in John 1.14. I'm going to look at these two ways that John communicates and shares the glory of Jesus Christ. Number one, I want to share with you and look at the vast quantity of Jesus' miracles. Second, I want to see with you, the venerable quality of his character. John does this for us, and we'll do it with him now. First, it is our great joy to consider this morning from the Gospel of John, the glory of Jesus Christ seen then, number one, in the vast quantity of Jesus' miracles. The vast quantity of Jesus' miracles. Inasmuch as John 1.14 is one of the greatest declarations in the Bible, happy birthday Jesus text, right? In the same powerful sentence, the Apostle John includes one of the greatest understatements in the Bible when John the Apostle says, and we beheld his glory, these five words. Brothers and sisters, how loaded, how loaded are these five words? As we had just read earlier, this is a man who saw Jesus transfigured. He reduced Jesus' transfiguration, and the whole time that he spent in ministry with Jesus, three years, he reduced it down to five words, and we beheld his glory. That's an understatement. John's whole gospel, which covers all of the years of the ministry of Jesus Christ, its richness, depth, history, personality, divinity, miracles, teaching, training, love, kindness, long-suffering, patience, and grace, John crams it all together here in five words the way that your Italian grandmother expects you to stuff food into your belly on Christmas Eve. You're in John 21, 25, where John comments on the extensive amount of material from Jesus' life that was worthy of writing about, but he had to be discerning. And so he says in John 21, 25, just in case you missed the point. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the volume of books that would have been written. John was presented with a nearly impossible task, condensing the life and ministry of Jesus into a letter suitable for broad transmission to all the churches in Judea, Asia, and the Mediterranean. It wasn't a time when everyone could have a wall full of library books. Turn to John chapter 2, will you please? John 2, we'll look at verse 4. For us to understand Jesus' glory... We'll do well to unpack John's great understatement in John 1.14, we beheld Jesus' glory, just a little bit. Indeed, this is what the Apostle John would want us to do. He's going to take 21 chapters to express his best thoughts about Jesus' glory, and so it is fine and good for us to take this moment and behold the glory of Jesus as John beheld the glory of Jesus. In John chapter 2, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, immediately after calling 12 disciples to himself. Jesus attended a wedding in Cana, not too far from his hometown, Nazareth. At the wedding, Jesus' mother, Mary, notices that the wine is running out for the celebration, and she insists Jesus use his glory and his power to fix this wedding feast hospitality failure. 
Read Jesus' response with me in John chapter 2, verse 4, where John reports, And Jesus said to Mary his mother, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water jars set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing two or three measures each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Now when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee at the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. This is a theme through scripture, particularly John's gospel. The sign and the belief. The sign, the glory, and the belief. Friends, behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Changing water into wine reveals Jesus has power over all of the elements in nature. Just as Jesus' glory was revealed to the disciples by the miracle of for the purpose of belief in him, so too, this same miracle, shared 2,000 years later, with you now, is shared with you for the purpose of belief in Jesus Christ and for life in his name. Turn in your Bibles to John 11. John 11. Not only is Jesus' glory seen in the miracle of changing water into wine, Jesus' glory is seen relationally in the care and concern that he expressed for Mary, for the disciples, their friends, and for God's purpose in marriage there in the wedding feast of Galilee when he changed water into wine. Greater glory came for Jesus when the Apostle John, filled with the Holy Spirit, remembered and reported all that, had, all that he had come to see, know, and believe about the nature and the circumstances of this miracle and a few other miracles out of the vast quantity of signs and miracles that Jesus performed, all of which revealed Jesus' glory. He spent three years with Jesus, and he just walked around swallowing up all of the glory that Jesus was conducting right in front of him. On your way to John 11, understand that you are flying over Jesus' glory territory. John chapter 4, when Jesus evangelizes the Samaritan woman at the well by confronting the hypocritical condition of her heart as she claimed to know Yahweh, but her life didn't prove it, that's an important moment. Jesus' glory was seen in his ability to discern the thoughts and intentions of the woman's heart. John chapter 4 as well. It has Jesus healing the sixth son of a royal official from Capernaum without physically seeing the child. Jesus' glory was seen in his medical ability. He was the first century anti-Fauci who didn't require vaccination for the sick. John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. Later that night, he walks on water. Again, Jesus' glory is seen in control over the physical elements of this world. John chapter 9, Jesus restores the sight of a man born blind by spitting into the dirt and making clay from the spittle and then rubbing it into the eyes of the man and telling him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus' glory is seen in John 9 and his power over the human form and frame, its brokenness, disease, even the curse that's found in Genesis 3. Jesus has power over the curse. You're in John 11, where Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is sick in Bethany. Jesus is not in Bethany when he receives the report that Lazarus is, in fact, very sick. And John reports in John 11:4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Hold on to your seats, folks. That's an important text. There's a glory claim there. The Son of God may be glorified by this. Please note that Jesus has previously said in John 5.41, I do not receive glory from men. In John 8.50, I do not seek my own glory. In John 8.54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Jesus will later pray to the Father in heaven in John 17, 5, saying, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, all of these glory thoughts, they dive down into a question. 
They beg the question of us, does Jesus want glory or not? Does Jesus want glory or not? There seems to be the possibility of a glory contradiction. Does Jesus want glory or not want glory? Which is it? Friends, there is no contradiction in these texts whatsoever. Jesus never came to earth seeking his own glory and fame as if he was a man like you or I. He is the one who is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with his Father and his Holy Spirit. Jesus knows that his actions produce glory for himself, but never, ever would he believe that his glory was his alone. Jesus seeks divine representative glory. Jesus is in pursuit of Trinitarian glory. Triune God glory is what Jesus is after. His actions prove this. Jesus knows that displaying his glory results in glory to the Father, glory to the Son, and glory to the Spirit. It could never be said that Jesus was seeking after his own glory. Jesus only ever sought the glory of his Father and his Spirit, which obviously means that he's going to be glorified in that as well. And here in John 11, he gets exactly the glory that he set out for. But not like anyone expected, because contrary to Jesus' statement in 11.4, Lazarus dies. He's physically dead. And Jesus didn't race to Bethany to heal him. Nor did Jesus do the remote healing miracle for Lazarus that he did for the royal official's son in John 4. Instead, Jesus arrives in Bethany four days late on purpose. You get that? Jesus arrives in Bethany four days late on purpose. Are you good with that? Think about it. Are you good with Jesus showing up late for healing a sick man? People are hurting. His family's hurting. The young man died. What is the purpose of Jesus' late arrival, friends? The answer is this. The purpose of Jesus' late arrival is Jesus' glory. Human suffering takes a back seat to the glory of God, which results in salvation and the end of suffering for humanity if they're paying attention to Jesus' glory. We read in John eleven thirty eight. 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb of Lazarus. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time he smells, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me. But because of the crowd gathered around me, I said this to you, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done, they saw his glory. They then believed in him. There is a direct connection to seeing Jesus' glory and believing him. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of Jesus Christ. He has ultimate power over life and death. Will you turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1 and look at verse 14 again with me? Some might say, but Oliver, why treat Lazarus that way? And why allow Martha and Mary to have such heartache over the physical death and loss of their brother? They were suffering, Oliver, for four days at the loss of their brother physically in this life. He was dead. How is their suffering to the glory of Jesus? How is any suffering to the glory of Jesus? Why doesn't Jesus end all suffering and get glory from that now? 
These are the questions that go through the minds of men. Are they your questions? If they are, understand they're good questions. They're fine questions. Ask the question. I will pray that your ears are open to receive the answer. The answer is this. Friend, if these are your questions, then you need to understand that you are missing some facts about life. Let me put them into context very briefly. You're missing the fact that Jesus Christ is the creator of the earth, as reported in Genesis chapter 1. As the creator, he was making creation in his image and according to his likeness. That creation that he made in Genesis 2 rebelled against him quickly in Genesis 3. From that moment, the world has suffered under the just and righteous punishment of Jesus Christ and his Father in heaven and the continually heavy weight of human sin and human rebellion. The earth groans because of the curse of God, the righteous and just curse of God, and human sin and rebellion. Jesus' glory is seen first in creation. He chose to give life to us in his image and according to his likeness. Second, Jesus' glory is seen in his long-suffering and patience, in that he never entirely destroyed humanity. Even now, he is gracious enough that Jesus himself is sustaining the lives of 8 billion people on the face of the earth. Jesus' glory is seen best in his incarnation, in his birth as a baby to Mary, that takes him to the cross at Calvary. His greatest glory comes when he is hanging on the cross, receiving the wrath of God against our sins, taking our place. Leon Morris says, in a deeper sense, it is the cross of shame that manifests the true glory of Jesus Christ. So between creation and the cross, Jesus' glory is seen so clearly as he lays in a feeding trough crib. 2,000 years ago at his incarnation when John captures it perfectly in John 1.14 where he expresses Jesus' humble glory when he writes, Our God, the Lord Jesus, the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, this is Jesus' glory from healing sickness and blindness to feeding people with wine, fish, and bread to presently sustaining the lives of 8 billion people who bear his image and likeness to his incarnation coming to earth as a baby, born to Mary, born in a stable in Bethlehem. These are just token accounts taken from the vast quantity of Jesus' miracles that he performed over the course of his life which speaks volumes about the quality of Jesus' venerable character. Which brings us to the second way that John communicates Jesus' glory to us. The first way that he communicates his glory to us is in this understatement that leads us to the vast quantities of Jesus' miracles. When he said, we beheld his glory, those five words. And we expanded on those five words and said, let's look at some of the glory. And so we saw the vast quantity, even doses of it. But let's look now at number two. Let's see how John shares Jesus' glory in number two in our notes. The venerable quality of Jesus' character. The venerable quality of Jesus' character. Clearly, Jesus' many miracles scream at us about his glory. This goes without saying, but what about when Jesus wasn't performing miracles? What about the times when he was responding to the events of life around him with family, friends, and his disciples? What did Jesus' glory look like in the everyday Instances of life. John MacArthur says, The disciples saw Jesus manifest God's holy nature primarily by displaying divine attributes, such as truth, wisdom, love, grace, knowledge, power, and holiness. How was Jesus able to display the perfect, righteous, holy nature of God? Because Jesus is God. That's the point of John's prologue. You have to know that. If you're to understand the miracles and the signs, you need to know we're dealing with the God-man. Jesus is God. John calls Jesus in our text the monogenes, which is translated in your Bibles, only begotten. You see the words there? Some people get all bent out of shape about the English translation of this Greek word because only begotten makes it sound like Jesus was a created being. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses claim that this verse presents Jesus as lesser than God, the Father, even a a creation, a creature of God, the Father. Friends, don't let your hearts be troubled by the Jehovah's False Witnesses' misinterpretation of this text, nor by the English translation, only begotten. Know this, please, know this. The Greek word monogenes means unique. It means one and only. There is nothing in this world that indicates, nothing in this word that indicates that there is a creation element to this word. James Boyce says monogenes means being without like or equal, single in kind or excellence, matchless. John MacArthur says monogenes distinguishes Christ as the unique son of God from believers who are God's sons in a different sense. He is the monogenes. We are the adopted children of God. There's a difference between us and him. Monogenes is an important word to John. He uses monogenes here in John 1.14 and immediately again, as you see in the text in John 1.18, to describe how unique our one God in heaven truly is. Certainly, you know that monogenes shows up again as well in everyone's favorite Bible verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only unique son. Again, monogenes has nothing to do with origin or creation. It is a word that describes how Jesus is distinct, matchless, and exceptional. The same word is used of Isaac's relationship to his father, Abraham, in Hebrews eleven seventeen. Isaac was a monogenes. The only unique daughter of Jairus is discussed in Luke eight forty two. Monogenes. Jesus is monogamous. He is unique because he is God. He is the one and only God who came to earth and took on flesh to humbly experience all the failures and trappings of human flesh to be just like us and yet entirely, that is, perfectly without sin. Jesus' deity, as you can imagine, led to Jesus' flawless character. He perfectly accomplished delivery of the fruit of the Spirit of God living inside of him every day of his 33 years on earth. Every moment of every day, Jesus' life was full of Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5.22 There were, however, two divine attributes displayed by Jesus for his glory, which the Apostle John took special notice of. You see them here in our text when John says, And we beheld his glory. That understatement. And we beheld his glory. Sure you did, John. And we beheld his glory. It was glory as of the monogamous, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. How special is it when someone takes notice of your best attributes? John did that for Jesus here in the text. Don't we all love being appreciated? Isn't it nice to receive a compliment and to be understood by someone else and, and to understand that someone else was watching you? That person, they had eyes on me. They, they saw me. They noticed me. They said something nice about me. Turn your Bibles to Luke 2. 25, Luke 2.25. Lane Hall is a name that you'll forget after this sermon. I'm going to give you his name right now, though. Lane Hall, he was born on Christmas Day, Christmas Lane, December 25th, 1880. Lane's glory was longevity in life and safe driving, which were noticed and beheld and honored his longevity in life and safe driving by the New York State Commissioner of Motor Vehicles in January of 1990, when they wrote Lane Hall, they wrote him a letter of commendation for his years of safe, ticket-free, citation-free, accident-free driving. Later that same year, in November of 1990, Lane Hall died at the ripe old age of 110. He'd been driving the roads of Silver Creek, New York for 75 years, which made him the Guinness World Record holder with the title of oldest person to hold a valid driver's license. Jesus' glory was not beheld to a ripe old age. His glory was found in the content of his character beginning at his incarnation, at his birth. Leaving heaven, taking on flesh, and coming to earth is the most humble and grace-filled service to mankind that a Savior could ever perform. This is the grace of Jesus. And his Father in heaven did not allow Jesus' glorious grace and humility to go unnoticed. You're in Luke 2, 25, where the Lord is going to bless the hearts of a few people as Mary and Joseph 
have taken baby Jesus into the temple in Jerusalem. The Father in heaven had chosen that his son's glorious grace in coming to earth in flesh would be honored at his appearance in the temple by two chosen saints who rightly beheld the glory and grace of Jesus Christ as a baby in the temple in Jerusalem. Luke records the events in Luke 2.25 saying, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the, Lord, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out his, the custom of his law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were marveling at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at the very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Verse 39. And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Now the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. John 4. The grace of God was not only upon Jesus, the grace of God in Jesus was beheld by men. Jesus' life was consumed with sacrificially giving his best to others for their benefit. When they didn't know him, pursue him, or desire him, he was giving his best to them. Consider the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus visited her city. He created the conditions to be able to speak to her. He graced her by speaking with her. Consider the words of grace Jesus offered to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 10, where Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Friends, this is grace. And he has more grace for her. But grace, as you should well know, demands the presentation of truth. And we see grace and truth when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in John 40, uh, chapter 4, verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's grace. This conversation is the perfect illustration of John's comment. Jesus was full of grace and truth. The Samaritan woman was made to behold the glory of Jesus Christ who offered her the absolute best of his grace and truth. The result was spiritual salvation for her and for many others in her village. Grace, friends, is unmerited favor. You can't earn grace. You don't deserve, deserve grace. Would you turn in your Bibles to John 14 as we close our time? John 14. Grace, friends, is the perfect anti-Santa Claus word. Santa Claus is making a list, checking it twice. He only gives gifts to those who are proven to be nice and not naughty. Friends, grace is given to the naughty, to the sinful, the wretched, the lowly, and the broken. Grace is given when you absolutely don't deserve it. That's how grace works. You know, it just occurs to me that, do you understand that Santa Claus is the God of the Roman Catholics? Santa Claus is the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Santa Claus is the God of the Mormons. Santa Claus is the God of the Muslims. Santa Claus. Why? Work, perform, work, perform, work, perform. Get her done. And then maybe, if you've worked long and hard enough, you'll get... 
the goods. It's exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. How do you understand yourself? Do you understand yourself to be undeserving, naughty, sinful, wretched, and broken? I hope so. Are you unworthy of gifts from anyone because of, your, of the sins that you committed against them? Or do you have life all figured out? Are you nice? You're a good person, aren't you? Did Santa bring you tons of gifts for being a good boy this year? Jesus Christ, friends, is the anti-Santa Claus. He must give the gift of salvation based on his grace alone. He could never give the gift of salvation of grace based on your earning it with a really nice performance. That would change the very definition of grace. The Samaritan woman was entirely undeserving. He just showed up and spoke to her in Samaria, in her home country, at her well, because her name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. She was one of God's elect, chosen, predestined for salvation. So Jesus graced her with his presence, his truth, when she didn't deserve it. To be sure, she needed both grace and truth. You're in John 14, where Jesus is gracing his disciples at the Last Supper on the night of his glory. He's concerned about their hearts, which are going to be devastated in just a matter of hours. And so Jesus offers them grace and truth, just like he did with the Samaritan woman, to prepare them for his crucifixion, death, even the next day. Jesus graces his disciples by saying to them in John 14, reading at verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Can you see? Friends, are you beholding in these texts the glory of Jesus Christ? Can you see that he is full of grace and truth? In the event that you missed it or didn't believe the Apostle John when he said Jesus is full of truth, here you have it from Jesus himself. I am the truth. Friends, there is no greater truth than this. And it could not possibly be stated more powerfully or clearly than Jesus stating it right here in John 14, 6. You don't get to heaven. You don't get to see the Father. You don't get eternal life except that your reality, your life experiences, your guiding principle is that Jesus is truth. Friend, are you beholding the quality of Jesus' venerable character like the Apostle John? Have you come to behold the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ in his grace and his truth? In 1914, German and British soldiers, they ceased fighting to celebrate Jesus' birthday on Christmas Day. In their own way, they beheld the glory of Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, full of grace and truth. And so, too, we've spent our Christmas morning not indulging our desires to be at home, in our pajamas, but beholding Jesus' glory, both the vast quantities of his miracles and the venerable quality of his character. John Owen says, the beholding of Christ in glory is that which is itself too high, too illustrious and marvelous for us in our present condition. And he's right, it is. Jesus' glory is far too high and marvelous to behold all at once. Beholding Jesus' glory, grace and truth is the pursuit of our lives. And what a worthy pursuit it is. John Owen says, This, therefore, the pursuit of Jesus' glory, should excite us to our present duty. For all of our present glory consists in our preparation for future glory. John Owen would have us consider the benefits of beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, The constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, get this, The constant contemplation of the glory of Christ will give rest, satisfaction, and complacency to the soul Souls of them who are exercised in that respect. Have you exercised yourself in the respect of beholding the glory of Christ? Have you experienced these benefits of beholding Jesus' glory? Is the glory of Jesus, grace and truth, transforming you, friend, even now? Does the humility and grace of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem satisfy your soul and bring peace to your home? Is your heart prepared for heaven with a humble and gracious thought of our glorious Savior. The call in your life, friend, is to behold the glory of Jesus Christ, His grace and truth all of your days. 
You're equipped to do this best in the context of a local church where the word of God is honored and preached with the full force of its grace and truth washing over you and all of us. We hope you see this, that this is exactly what the Lord has brought to us this morning, Christmas morning, as we read through John 1.14 together. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a joyous thing to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. To think on Mary and Joseph looking into the manger at the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and to recognize that you planned this from eternity past to deliver salvation to them. Father, we marvel at this treasured image, these treasured words and this incredible picture of our Savior so humble, so full of grace, himself the truth, that he humbled himself to become this God-man, this baby in a manger. We have celebrated him, we have honored him, we want to do that again in song before we leave. I thank you, Lord, for the congregation of brothers and sisters that you've called to Community Bible Church, that we get to behold the glory of Christ in one another as you strengthen and build us into your church. This is your bride, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, be honored in us here today. In your matchless name we pray, amen.